First of all, it's all storytelling. <clears throat> it's just a different form. I mean, music tells stories, and so do books. A professional can do a job, any job, at any time, in any circumstance. Cold, hot, no pay, lots of play. The professional shows up half hour early, and by the time you hit, the professional has his instrument out, and he or she is ready to go. If the gig starts at 2 o'clock, the professional has his coat off, his coffee is sipped, and he's sitting in his chair at 1.30. Here we are with another fine edition of Play It Like It's Music. Musicians in their own words. Today is a great day because I get to speak to my good friend, world famous author James McBride. I know him as a band leader. You probably know him for his best selling books, the movies he made with Spike Lee, all that stuff. I went and met him at The Source, New Brown Memorial Baptist Church in Red Hook, Brooklyn. If you read his first book, The Color of Water, then you'll know the place I'm talking about. Let's go, without any further ado. James McBride, how you doing? Doing good, doing very good, here in Brooklyn. So we're sitting here in the sanctuary of New Brown Memorial in Red Hook. This is the place, this is where it all began, right? Yeah, my parents started this church in 1955. That's, uh, what, 60, I don't know, a long time ago. So I'm still here. I run a little music program here for the kids from the projects. Been doing that for five years, we teach piano. We start them out on drums, and then the, the more advanced ones or the more interesting ones, we move them into piano. Why do you play music? I play music because I want people to be free. What was your first memory of hearing music before you were ever a player? Well, my first memory of hearing music was in this building. I heard uh, a woman named Helen Lee, who was an organist, the organist here, who died in 2008. I heard her playing music, and it was great. And she was the first person I ever saw read music, you know, like open a book and, and, you know, make it happen from the book. And she also swung very heavily. And she played the type of organ that you don't really hear anymore, where she played with her feet. There were no drums. She just played bass with her left hand and bass with her foot. And the right hand played the chords and the melody, but the groove, you know, that you know, that groove was something that I, that really affected me, and I never forgot that. I always felt like whatever swing or groove I've had, I learned right here in this building. When and how did you start playing? I started playing piano first in my house, and then, uh, and then uh, there was a program in school where they taught you how to play piano using cardboard cutouts of the keys, and you just played the keys, played the cardboard cutout while the teacher wrote the notes on the blackboard. Then I took clarinet, and I started with clarinet in the band in school, maybe like you know, third or fourth grade. And I was in the school band, and we played John Philip Sousa stuff, and did that through... Uh, through middle school. And then um, in high school, I started branching out into flute and, uh, and saxophone. I could get my hand on one. And then I got into electric bass for a while. Played bass in a R&B band in high school. I didn't know that. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, I was into bass, man, because I didn't have a saxophone. You know, my, my brother had a saxophone, but I, you know, I couldn't afford a, a horns like that. Um, and then when my family moved, 
uh, out of New York in my senior year of high school. And uh, I tried to get in the band, and the guy, he didn't have any, had no saxophones. I didn't want to play clarinet, so I told him I played trombone, which I really didn't play. So when he auditioned me on trombone, I really couldn't play it, you know. So he put me in, like, the kids, you know, beginning ensemble. And after, after a month or two, I worked my way into the, into the senior band and the marching band as a trombone player. Mm. All right. First time you ever played for money, what was that moment like? First time I ever played for money was outside of church where, you know, they'd give me a dollar or five dollars or something for playing, you know, was, I think it was a, uh, a band in Queens where we did a dance or something like that. I'm not sure. It might be, it, you know what it was? When I, my family moved to Wilmington, Delaware, I joined the band. I was playing uh, trombone and saxophone in an R&B band. And we played at a Mason's Lodge somewhere in, in Delaware, like a, the Elks or Mason's, one of those black clubs, you know. It was a rat hole, man. I mean, literally, man, you went in the bathroom, it was like a big hole right under the sink where rats crawled in and out of. It was a funky spot, man. But, you know, we did it, and uh, we ended up doing a record. It was called The Baja. And uh, it was... <laughs> it was... It was a, actually, the band had a bass player and a drummer that were really good. But, you know, it was one of those things where everybody was smoking and drinking and carrying on. I was young, you know, I was in high school, so it was a little bit of a risque type of deal. So that, I think that was my first gig where I actually got paid. Yeah. All right. And so navigating the waters, like, as a player, as a band leader, as a composer slash writer, was there a process of, you know, finding your lane, or did you kind of spread yourself out among all those ways for a while? Well, you know, I went to Oberlin. I studied at Oberlin, and I, I quickly realized that um, I never really loved the saxophone enough to become a great saxophone player. I just didn't have the discipline or the desire to practice the hours that were needed, and I just didn't really feel like I loved it enough. I like to write music more. So my, my, I focused my studies on composition and, and jazz, of course, and then when I got out of school, out of Oberlin, I became I was became very socially conscious when I was at Oberlin. So I decided I wanted to change the world. So I applied to uh, Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. Can I can I stop you for a second? Because you know I hear you as a sax player pretty regularly, and it's rare that we get to hear you cut loose on the sax. The journey with the sax, you know, who who were your who were your most influential sax people? Like the the, the ones you admire the most. Well, it had to be Sonny Rollins and John Coltrane. That's that's easy. I mean, when I was young, um, my brother Richie played the saxophone. He was actually a very, very talented musician. He became a, a, like a chemist, a chemist, a professional engineer, chemist type. We used to listen to Coltrane a lot in, in the house because of my brother Richie and also Junior Walker and Curtis, um, King Curtis because my sister Jack used to live in Harlem and, and King Curtis was a friend of hers because he used to get his clothes dry clean and, and he was, he was in living and he, I don't think he was from Harlem, but Harlem was, you know, during that time in the 60s, Harlem was, was quite different. So when I got to college, I ended up studying with a guy named Wendell Logan, who was a, the head of the, what, what little jazz program Oberlin had. And he, he played saxophone and trumpet. And he also brought in a saxophonist named Candy Johnson, who, Spent many years playing with Count Basie's band. And Candy Johnson was all about sound. He didn't want to hear you playing a lot of 
Jamie Abersall shit, you know. I mean, Jamie Abersall was just starting at the time, and you know, I was coming to lessons with that, and he'd just say, I don't want to hear that, you know. Practice your ass off and <laughs> come up with something on your own, you know. He didn't want to hear patterns and all that shit. He wanted to hear sound, and he wanted to hear what you did with thirds and sevenths, and, um, and, but, but he was really about sound and about rhythm, you know. He felt the saxophone was more of a rhythm instrument than a horn, than just a horn. So I got into that, you know. Yeah. See, I, I listened to sax players from before then, players like Illinois Jacquette, Earl Bostic. Yeah, he was from Philly. Yeah, yeah. Earl Bostic was from Philly, yeah. Earl or Earl? Uh, Earl, Earl Bostic. Yeah. And he was an influence on Coltrane as well. To me, that sound is like the party band sound, like from those days where it's it's really focused on like entertainment and people having a good time, and it's like really energetic and lively. It's not as there's like the intellectual world of music of ideas in music, and then there's the uh, the delivering a party side of music, and there's people who navigate both, and there's people who sort of pick one side. Now, I know you as a very well-rounded musician, but did you ever make conscious choices to do one or the other? That's a very good question, Trevor. I mean, you know, you and I played together for a long time now. It's been some years now. I think we both agree that if music doesn't move people, then what's the point of doing it? I mean, I can't, I can't count the times I've been to concerts where the thing starts at seven o'clock, and then you look at and three hours pass, and then you look at your watch and it's seven fifteen, because the guy, you know, the guy's got blah blah blah. Yeah, I don't believe in all that. I mean, you know, I, I, that's, co that's been covered. Like, Miles did that. Sonny Rollins did that. You know, Sonny Rollins, way out west. He covered all that. I mean, I mean, only 12 notes to work with. I, I, I think that you have to make music to please people. You have to make music that makes people happy. I mean, the, the whole point, I, for me personally, I'd rather the music entertain people and give them some joy rather than to try to make music that will illuminate. I think... Joy is a kind of self-illumination that allows people to see the world in better ways if you can connect to them with music that they relate to. Usually I have folks play a little bit. Do you have anything? I know the sax isn't here uh, right now, but... I don't have anything to play, but I'll, I'll set up a piano. We could do a little, you know, I could play some, demonstrate what I'm teaching here. All right. Yeah, does that take a second? Let's take a minute. teach them how to how to do this the groove thing that you hear in church like oh when the saints come watching sit played like this
something that I learned from Sister Lee, and I used to ask her about that. I'd say, you know, what did you do for drums when you were, you know, when you were playing? She said, drums? There wasn't no drums. She, she raised the left hand, she said, this was the drums. And she won five, you know. what she used to do was she used to do something called what they call it subdominance where you take the third you take the third of the next chord and you and you play it as the root so going from F to an A7 instead of playing an A7 and A C sharp E you play an F chord and then you play an maybe it sounds better with no other one so you play an F so you keep you keep you play an A, A, a C sharp in the bass, and you go to, to, a, to a D minor, and then you, which, and then you play uh, a D sharp in the bass when you play the D chord. I mean, F sharp in the bass. Uh, going a G minor with a, and then going to a, with a B in the bass, and then to a C, C sus. So when you hear when someone in church playing this. I'll, I'll go to an organ voice. It might. With, uh, Nash plays it better than I do. Um, let's see. This has. Someone's talking in church and you hear the background behind them. And I want everyone to remember that pray on Sunday. We're gonna pray for you next week and then they, they have a good week and don't forget that you know God is watching all all time and that that's what you hear. And Sister Lee used to do that quite a bit. You tell the story how you used to have to sub for Sister Lee sometimes and then you would get in a little bit of trouble yeah, with your mom at least for, for being too jazzy. What's up, boy? Hang on a second. What's up? What's all this decorations? Huh? It's for a funeral. A funeral? Yeah. So church is closed away. tomorrow? No, no, it ain't closed tomorrow, so you got to come tomorrow. Mr. Phil's downstairs. What you doing monkeying around up here? There's a cricket downstairs. Say hello to you. Oh, yeah? And there's a cricket running from a cricket. You running from a cricket? Yes. <laughs> He's getting tall, man. He's getting tall by the week. Actually, I, I, the last time I stepped on the dead cricket, I heard a crack. That's all right. He ain't crying now. He's happy. <laughs> so what would you say? Oh, so yeah, I used to sub for my sister in church. And my sister used to, you know, my sister was a really good player. And, um, and that, it was really a problem for me in church because not being a true pianist, you know, if someone would, you know, if someone would sing, what a friend we had, like, uh, we shall overcome. 
And they would sing it in the key of D flat, you know. And I couldn't play in D flat. I'd be like, please, come back to F. And they'd be... I mean, it was just a... It used to be a problem. Now I can play in, in you know, almost all the keys. I'm stronger in some keys than the other. And I've also figured out some of the stuff that Sister Lee used to know. See, they, they didn't teach you this, but instinctively, if you grew up in church, you knew there were certain chord movements that people do, you know, that you understand, that, that you learn later, you know. That's great. Well, um, I know you've come in here every Saturday to teach young musicians, new musicians. You know, there's a lot of people transitioning out of a professional musical life nowadays uh, into something else and then struggling to find a balance how to maintain a musical practice, but also finding new reasons to keep playing music that aren't simply professional. So I want you to talk a little bit about that, the value of music work to a young mind and uh, likewise to an adult professional mind. Well, I mean, I think any person, a person who can do music can do anything. If you have a Fortune 500 company and you want someone to join your company who knows about discipline, teamwork, learning, accumulated learning, and how to get along with others, then you want a musician. So what music teaches you beyond, beyond just the actual love of playing something that's beautiful is it teaches you how to adapt to changing circumstance. So most musicians don't realize that they have enormous skills they can use in other places other than just teaching music. There's computers, there's literature, there's learning, there's history, anthropology, all types of skills that you can apply to other parts of life if you decide that you just don't want to starve. You know, in my case, the discipline of music helped me tremendously with writing because you sit down to write a novel, man, a novel is a big thing. I mean, a novel is a it's a hard thing to do. It requires enormous discipline. You have to sit down every day and, you know, carve away at characters and ideas, most of which don't work. One of the things that music teaches you is that you're just not the best. You're not the best at something. Somebody's always better, or they do it better than you, or they do it in a way that you're unable to do, and you learn to appreciate that and not feel... And if you love music like you and I do, you know, you just, you just love what they do. You're just so impressed by their ability to make something happen that you necessarily can't do. So, you know, the transition for, you know, music has become an ancillary thing in our society. There was a time when if you made a record, you actually could sell the record and make royalties and residuals off that record. I mean, I made royalties and residuals off of my Anita Baker records and, and the Grove of Washington records I did, and even from Barney, you know. But they pretty much stopped. I mean, you know, people don't, don't buy music anymore. They find ways to get it free or they get it from these, you know, the you, you know, YouTube or iTunes, or whatever. So uh, I've just found ways to make music. See, music makes me happy. And so I've just found ways to keep myself being happy without getting paid for it. And in my case, I do it through writing. But if I weren't a musician, I would not be a good writer. So going through a period where you made most of your income in music and now being in this period where most of your income is made outside of music and yet you have quite a robust musical practice with the teaching, with the shows that we do, and yet it's, it's not your primary source of income. How and when did that transformation happen for you? Well, I mean, chronologically, after I got out of Oblin, I was a, a journalist for nine years. I worked with Wilmington News Journal and the Boston Globe and People Magazine and the Washington Post. 
and then I and then I quit the post and I became a musician for nine years. So you know I was making a, a you know a very decent salary at the post, and then I just went from making I don't know what it was it was fifty or sixty grand a year you know this is in the late eighties to like fifteen or eighteen thousand a year as a musician, but I was very happy, um, and I just learned the hustle you know here in New York you know. Um, and I just, you know, because I knew so many people who were journalists who were just miserable. Music made me happy. So I just kept doing what made me happy. And then I, I you know, I was always a strong, I felt I was a stronger writer than I was a saxophone player. So I started writing. And I'd always written songs. I, st I tried working in musical theater for a while. But that's a, that's, a, that's a closed society. And I just wasn't interested in, I did it. But, you know, you sit, workshop something for six months. And then, you, then maybe it pops, maybe it doesn't. But songwriting was just an easier route. So I made some pretty good money working with Anita Baker and, and Grover Washington, people like that. But at the end of it, when I got married, you know, getting on the road was harder and harder because I was, you know, I was writing songs. I was on the road with Jimmy Scott, little Jimmy Scott's band. But it was hard. So I had this idea to write a book about my mother. So I did it. And it, it popped. It didn't pop immediately, but it started to, to groove. And I just got another book contract. That mushroomed into a real literary career. And then the music career, I basically have had to just pick up and move from block to block, from house to house, because there's no demand for my music. And that's the thing musicians have to understand. There's no demand for your music, especially now. There's no, no financial demand. You have to create the demand. And, uh, and I've taken that same mentality into writing as well, because in writing, there's no real demand. Even now, as a best-selling author, I have readers now who read my books. But I'm what you call a, a literary author, so I'm not a Stephen King where I make millions of dollars. You know, I have to go out, every book, I have to go out, I have to publicize it. You know, the new writers coming in younger, they got, you know, you got all that. But music teaches you to adapt. So I continually adapt, and the, the fact that... Um, you know, it, it falls, a lot of this falls under the heading of if you build it, they will come, you know? So that thing with uh, going out and publicizing your book and then bringing a band to do that, I know plenty of bands that go out on touring, they don't bring an author to mix it up there. Well, it's all, well first of all, it's all storytelling. <clears throat> it's just a different form. I mean, music tells stories and so do books. So people who like stories come to see or hear or experience stories, so how you want to, you know, translate those stories for people is your business. I mean, they thought I was, cr you know, crazy when I started, when I told the publisher that I wanted to take a band out. They didn't support it. I did it. I paid for it. Initially, I paid for the travel and I paid the musicians. And then eventually they, they sort of came along and they kind of helped in certain places. And they're still not all the way with it because they, they do things in a really antiquated sort of fashion. If I had more resources, there are ways I could do this that, that wouldn't even involve the publisher, but I just don't have the time or the resources to push it out there. People who read books like music, and people who like music often, not always, but often like books. So you have to figure out a way to, to reach people, and you got to do it by just doing it. You can't just talk about it, you know. I hear those drums starting up in the background. Uh, it's a good way to segue into this thing I wanted to ask you about, which is how has your experience been starting up the teaching practice here on the weekends? And tell me a little bit about that. Well, this whole thing started out when the organist who I referred to earlier, Sister Lee, died. She died in 2008, and she was a good friend of mine. I mean, she was someone I knew all my life. 
and they had to get another organist to replace it, and they had a hard time. They got this guy. He was a jive cat. He couldn't read. You know, he was just a sissy, he was just a sissy fried jive dude. I couldn't stand him. If he didn't know a song, he would just keep his. Someone would stand in front of the church and sing it, and he, he wouldn't lift his hands on the organ, even try to find it. You know, and uh, and they kept him for a long time. He finally he just quit, which I was glad about. And uh, and they you know they kept trying to get somebody else. They couldn't afford anybody else. And I said, why are we trying to you know find some another organ player? We you know we got all these kids in the church. Let's just make our own. You know, let's grow our own. So. That's what, that's what started this program. And also the idea that the kind of organ that Sister Lee plays, that B3 organ, is disappearing, you know? She, you know, in the old days, Sister Lee, who was playing the organ that's sitting right in front of us here in this church, she would show somebody else how to do it, and they would, they would play. And then they, the next part, but that doesn't happen anymore because young people don't come to churches anymore. Plus this praise and worship bullshit is just taking over uh, church music. So... There's a cultural reason as well as a, uh, uh, you know, just a practical reason why I started this program. Two of the best students in this program come from the projects and go to this church because we need to raise our own organists to do this work. We can't depend on. So that, that's what started it. Now, training these kids has been difficult, and it's really been about training their parents or their caretakers. So what are the main distinctions between this school of music and the praise and worship school? Well, this school of music, I mean, we, we're based on, we're based on making sure, making sure, first of all, the kids know how to read music, that they just don't jam. This, this school of musical thought is, on, is based on the idea that the African-American evolution of music started with Africa and, and really culminated in the 40s and 50s and maybe early 60s with what we know now know as gospel music that goes, that kind of music. And after that, it began a slow deterioration to where it is now, which was praise and worship, which is really, really just gets its inspiration, not from so much from God, but from pop music. So this praise and worship music doesn't last as long. It's bubble gum. It's, it's potato chips. Whereas the old stuff lasts forever because it's good. That's where Sam Cooke and Aretha, all these, all these folks got their stuff out of the, the true gospel music that came out of the 40s and 50s. It's a little bit of a chickens coming home to roost thing because they went on to become pop stars and now the pop energy is coming back into the church. Yeah, and that energy's not great. You know, at praise and worship, is, a lot of it's just jive. I mean, they got these giant choirs, these giant churches. These giant choirs, you can't understand a word they're saying. It's more like a Broadway show. It's not really church. I mean, this church at most holds 150, maybe 200 people. So, and the choir of this church is, you know, comprised of like five old women, two old guys, and now a couple of these young kids, you know, who are in the youth choir, and there's maybe six of them. But those six are learning music, not just not how to play, just how to play music and read music, but they're learning songs that, that if they don't learn them, we're going to just disappear or just live in books. What separates the professional from the amateur? The professional can do a job, any job, at any time, in any circumstance. Cold, hot, you know, no pay, or lots of play. They, the professional shows up half hour early, and by the time you hit, the professional has his instrument out, and he or she is ready to go. If the gig starts at 2 o'clock, the professional has his coat off, his coffee is sipped, and he's sitting in his chair at 1.30. Now, uh, just to 
quick aside, sound-wise, you know, you talk about not being a particularly confident sax player, but then when I hear you play the saxophone, I don't hear a hobbyist. Well, uh, you know, you, you always have to surround yourself with really great players. I mean, I, I make sure I have people like in my band like you and Keith Robinson and, you know. That's not necessary, but I'll, I'll send you that check for that. Yeah, yeah, well, thank you very much. But, uh, you know, you have, to, you have to stay in your lane when you get... As an older player, you know there's certain stuff you'd like to try, but on the gig you don't try it because it's not the place to do it. So you just stay in your lane. When you, if you want to try something new, you try it at home and you work it out all the way before you actually hit on stage with it. Otherwise, you sound like an amateur. What should a newer player avoid completely? A newer player should avoid computers. A newer player should not use sequences and all that other crap. Because if you're using a sequencer to make music, no matter how good your music, you're using the same sequence and drums that somebody else is making. So you're using the same sequence and drums that a guy from Copenhagen is making. So you're not going to make anything good. That's the reason why Aretha Franklin's music sounds different than, than uh, Archie Bell and the Drells, because they're using different drummers with different bass players in different rooms. So I would say to a young player, I would say, don't make your music with a computer. Computers come later. You know, got to walk. Go acoustic first. Then learn how to go electric. That serves nicely. James McBride, thank you very much. Thank you, Trevor. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. I'm very happy that you included me. Yeah. Trevor got a podcast. Talk to you next. That was James McBride. The man does not do social media, which is a good thing. You can find out all you need to know from him by reading his books. I've read a bunch, but my favorite is Kill Him and Leave, all about one man's search for the real James Brown. He also has a new short story collection out now called Five Carat Soul, which is one of Barack Obama's favorite books this year. Go to jamesmcbride.com to find out more. That's our show. Thank you for listening, and thank James for sharing the new brown space with us. This is Play It Like It's Music. Where you gonna run to? Where you gonna run to? Judgment Day. Judgment Day. Where you gonna run to? Where you gonna run to? so much for listening to the show it means everything to have your ears and support each time you pass the link to your friends review us on the web and help out financially these are the players i admire the most and as a working musician myself i'm always looking to get to know them in a deeper way find out stuff that might help me become a better musician i love sharing these moments with you and reading your feedback and questions at our website playitlikeitsmusic.com where you can browse other episodes and support the show 
We are 100% listener funded. It's how we can have the conversation we need to have in an age when we're all contending with a mutating professional landscape, jacked revenue streams, and a lot of noise out there in the culture. These are exciting times. It's almost as if the simple act of playing an instrument is a revolutionary one. We don't draw any lines between scenes or styles. So if you haven't done it already, head over to the website and join the community. You can use PayPal or make a recurring pledge through Patreon, where we offer a selection of merch and rewards. As always, thank you for listening, and remember to play it like it's music. I'm Trevor Exeter.